would like to open your Bibles to John chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 42. So finishing out John chapter 10, 42 through, or excuse me, 22 through 42 on page 896. Father, you are so gracious to us. We thank you that you have given us spiritual sight to see your truth, spiritual hearing to recognize our Lord's call on our life. And Father, this morning we ask that you would give us the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit to see the true meaning of this passage and, and how to apply it to the Christian life. We don't want to miss anything from you as delivered through your revelation, your word. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It was summertime, and a brother and sister, Jared and Nicole, were visiting their grandparents' house, and their grandparents didn't have air conditioning, they had a fan. So they were sitting in the living room, watching TV, and all of a sudden Jared got up and he walked over to the fan and he, he kind of turned it, so it was blowing right on him. And Nicole watched that happen, and after he sat down, she went up to the fan and turned the fan towards her. And as she was turning it, Jared said, hey, don't do that, leave the fan on me. She said, I want the fan on me. And before he knew it, she had turned it all the way on her and went to go sit down. But before she sat down, Jared ran up. Then they both ran and they were arguing over the fan. And just then, Grandpa came in. And he said, Jared, you go sit down over there. Nicole, you sit down over there. And holding her stuffed animal in her sweetest voice, she said, okay, Grandpa, but turn the fan on me. And he said, how about we do this? Let's put it in the middle and everybody kind of gets cool from the air that's moving around. They said, no. I said, okay, uh, I'll turn it on Nicole, I'll set a timer for five minutes, and then when that's over, Jared, then I'll turn it to you for five minutes. No, I want the fan on me, they shouted. He said, okay, well, um, you know what, let's go outside and play. No. How about one of you come in the kitchen, we'll have a snack, arms folded. No. And at that point, Grandpa looked down at both of the children and said, well, it appears we have come to an impasse. So he unplugged the fan and took it out of the room. And both kids were shocked that, that Grandpa would take the fan away. They reached an impasse. They couldn't agree. Neither of them would budge. And, and the thing is, we don't outgrow this when we're kids. Maybe it's uh, labor union and, and company reps or teachers and the school board. Sometimes negotiations fail. Neither side will budge and, and there's a strike. Or, or maybe you're, you're haggling over the price of a, of a car and uh, the, the salesperson says, Here, this is the firm number. And you, you say, no, this is the firm number. And, and it, you just kind of reach an impasse. And the, the salesperson doesn't get a sale and, and the buyer doesn't get a car. They have to walk away. Maybe you've even reached an impasse with your spouse 
over what to set the thermostat over at night. And the point is this. In life, there are times when two parties reach an impasse. Neither side will budge. Neither side is going to compromise. And then that's it. There's, there's no use going on. There's no use continuing negotiations. There's no use furthering the dialogue. An impasse is a situation in which no progress is possible. Or, to put it another way, to come to a point past which no further progress is able to be made. And in John chapter 10, the second half, we see an impasse between the Jewish leaders and Jesus. Neither side is going to budge. The Jewish leaders will not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus is not going to stop being the Son of God that calls people to belief. So they reach an impasse. They reach a point where neither side is going to budge, and so no further dialogue is necessary. Now, the Bible teaches that it is still possible to reach an impasse with Jesus before we die. And this may be somewhat alarming, but it's biblical. So we're going to look at John chapter 10, what this is trying to teach us. We're also going to pull in a key cross-reference that also teaches the same thing. And we're to see what the spiritual impasse with Jesus looks like, and of course, how to avoid it. Our passage is John 10, starting at verse 22. See if you can hear the impasse. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father consecrated and said into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Our passage starts with a time marker. John is telling us that the Jews were celebrating the Feast of Dedication. And the Feast of Dedication was not something that can be found in the Old Testament scriptures. It wasn't in the law. It wasn't commanded by God. It was something that the Jews 
had invented as a result of a historical event. In 167 BC, the, the enemies of the Jewish people, this is during the intertestamental period, uh, the enemies came and captured the temple, they defiled the altar, and then in 164 BC, they recaptured the temple, and as a way to celebrate that, that recapturing and retaking of the temple, they rededicated the temple, and it lasted eight days, the celebration. And so it became known as the, the Feast of Lights, the, the Feast of Dedication, and Jews still celebrate it today. It's called Hanukkah, which means dedication. That's what that means. So it was during winter, uh, the Feast of Dedication took, month, it took place in the month of Kislev, which straddles our months of November, December. So it was uh, winter there. It doesn't get terribly cold. It doesn't get Chicago cold in Jerusalem, but it gets down into the 40s or 50s, or it can. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So in a somewhat protected area, this is a, an area that is covered. It's like a covered walkway with big pillars that surrounded kind of one side of the temple there. And the Jews gathered around him, which could also be translated as surrounded him, and asked, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, they're not in suspense with a hopeful attitude. They're not in suspense because they're waiting for a green light so they can go ahead and worship him and, and follow him and bend their knee to him. No, they're, they're looking for him to say something that they can use against him. This is kind of like, you remember the, the undercover agents that wear a wire and they go up and they casually engage the suspect in conversation, ask leading questions, hoping that hoping the suspect will incriminate themselves. That's kind of what's going on here. They're not wearing a wire, but they're hoping Jesus will say something in front of all these witnesses so they can say, gotcha, we can charge you, we can arrest you, and put an end to you. Are you the Christ? And Jesus answered, I told you. I told you already. You just don't believe me. And it's true. He had said many things to the Jewish leaders. Here's just a few. These are some of the things that Jesus had told them. My father is working until now, and I am working. Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. I have come in my Father's name. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is telling the leaders, look, I've told you who I am. I've made it plain where I come from. I've made it plain who my father is. I've made it plain that I was sent here to, and what I was sent here to do. You just don't believe. We've been through this, is what he's telling them. And then he turns to the works that I do in my father's name. They bear witness about me, changing water to wine, healing a man that had been paralyzed for 38 years, creating bread out of thin air to feed a crowd of probably 15 or 20,000, miraculously healing a blind man. All these works also point to who I am, but you do not believe because, verse 26, you are not among my sheep. That's why you don't believe. 
These leaders were not part of God's chosen people. They were not among the elect. They had not been called out. They were not part of Jesus' sheepfold or that one flock from John 10, 16. And in the next couple of verses, we see the importance of Jesus distinguishing between his sheep and everyone else. And he talks about his sheep. Look at verses 27 and 28. He makes several statements, and we're going to walk through some of these here. Uh, My sheep hear my voice. We talked about this last week. Those who have been called by God have been given spiritual hearing so that they can recognize and hear the voice of Christ and respond to his call, respond to his commands positively. Christ's sheep will not listen to a stranger's voice. They will only listen to the voice of their shepherd. They recognize it. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. Yes, God knows all people. That's true. So what is he really saying here when he says, I know them? He doesn't mean, I know about them, or I know of their existence. Um, Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Of course, God is omniscient. He knows all things. He He knows everything about you. He knows everything about me. He knows everything that's gone through our mind since the day we were born. He knows everything. So it doesn't mean he just knows them. It means he knows them in a saving sense. Romans 8.29 For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. This is talking about knowing in a saving sense, in a salvific sense. He knows his sheep in a saving sense. He doesn't know these leaders that he is engaged in a conversation with him because they're not his sheep. He doesn't know them in a saving sense. He only knows his sheep. In Matthew 7, uh, Jesus teaches on the kingdom of God and he says this, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So he's talking about to the unsaved. He didn't say, I didn't know about you or I didn't know you existed. I didn't know you in a saving sense, is what he's saying. You are not one of my sheep. The next phrase says, and they follow me. Jesus' sheep follow Jesus according to his word. Let's pause there for a minute and give special focus to what this means to follow Jesus, and they follow me. He doesn't mean we follow Jesus by our feelings. He doesn't mean we follow Jesus by listening to a still, small voice in our heads. We don't follow Jesus by saying, well, I just pray and listen to the Holy Spirit. I remember having a conversation one time with a believer who, that's how they navigated life. They said, I just pray and listen to the Holy Spirit. In other words, a feeling. I I just pray and then whatever feeling I get, that's the way I go. And of course, the problem with that is that we've moved the authority from God's word to our feeling and how we get an impression about something that we've prayed about. And that's, that's not how Christ calls us to follow him.
When we move the authority from God's word to a feeling we get or an impression we get based on praying and listening to the Holy Spirit, we are basing it on our subjective feeling, which is extremely biased towards what we want, and we make a decision on that. So that's not what he's talking about. We approach the Christian life by listening to God's word and applying it. So I would say beware of any Christian teacher leader that says God told them something or God spoke to them. Um, does God speak to us today? Yes, he does, through his word. Uh, can, can God use his word to speak to us? Absolutely. Can, can we read God's word and be convicted that he's using that portion of scripture to direct us? Yes. Can he direct us through answered prayer? Yes. Does he lead us through open and closed doors, ordinary circumstances? Yes, of course. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is if somebody says, God said to me, or God spoke to me, and I've noticed a, a disturbing trend, maybe you've noticed it, some popular teachers, pastors will mention that the Lord spoke to them or said something to them. I remember doing some spot checking on a, on a particular popular teacher and their videos of their sermons, and they started them the same way every time. They opened with a personal story about something that happened to them or their, them and their spouse that past week or that month, and inevitably it would get to the point where they would say, and I, and I stood there or I laid there or I was driving, and the Lord said to me, blank, fill in your name, Kurt, boom, and then either do this or don't do this or some sort of insight on, on what was going on. Now, I don't believe for a minute that the Lord spoke to that person. Not one minute. The reason why some teacher leaders slash pastors slash shepherds will say something like the Lord spoke to me and they will put it in that terms of like they visibly or audibly spoke to me is because then it makes them look like they're worth following. Here, here's how that works. If your teacher, leader, pastor, shepherd, whatever, says the Lord spoke to me, then your impression is, wow, they, they must be really spiritually mature. They must be really connected to God. Because God doesn't speak to me like that. I don't hear his voice. They, they must be really in tune with the Holy Spirit, and they must be anointed in a way that, that I could never be. You know what? I had better stay put and listen to them. I better stay and sit under their ministry because they're obviously like this with God in a way that I've never encountered before. Do you see how that works? We follow Christ by following his word and not by following people who claim that God has spoken to them audibly. Verse 28, another phrase, I give them eternal life. Eternal life that begins the moment we believe. The moment we believe, the moment we repent and believe and put our faith in Christ, we have eternal life. The moment we are justified, declared righteous in God's sight, we don't have to wait until we die to find out whether or not we're going to heaven or not. That, that is literally cartoon theology. You remember these? Remember Looney Tunes when Daffy or Porky Pig or, or somebody with Bugs Bunny would die and you see a picture of heaven and clouds and a golden gate and there'd be 
someone standing by a little podium with a book and a halo, and they would, they would be wondering, was I good enough? Did I, did I get in or not? That's cartoon theology. The Bible teaches that when we put our faith in Christ, our eternal life is given to us at that moment. Eternal life is a present possession of all believers. Ephesians talks about how we are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. God guarantees with the down payment, deposit of the Holy Spirit that we will live forever with them in the new heavens and the new earth. Now the New Testament is fairly tight-lipped about what that will look like or what that experience will be like. We're given very little to go on and it's always wise when scripture is silent not to uh, speculate, but it will be something beyond our imagination or comprehension. It will be glorious. We'll be with our Lord forever and it will be eternal. Jesus says they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now that implies that someone will try to snatch them out of Jesus' hand. Someone might try to steal sheep from Jesus' sheepfold. Snatch means to take by force, to seize, to steal. And he's saying no one can take my sheep out of my hand. No, not the wolves of false religion and cults and humanistic philosophy, not the thieves and robbers, false teachers, false shepherds, not even the ultimate enemy, Satan, with his temptations and schemes and just all-out spiritual attack. They will try, but no one and nothing can move a believer out of Jesus' hand. In verses 29 and 30, he talks about uh, the inseparable connection between the Father and Son. It's not just Jesus working independently, keeping his sheep. It's the Father and Son united, working in concert, keeping, preserving their sheep. Uh, Colossians 3, 3 hits, hits both Father and Son. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's both the Father and Son working together. It's that inseparable connection. And he summarizes that connection with this statement. I and the Father are one. Although the Father and the Son are two distinct persons, they are one in essence, one in power, one in will, one in operation. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all three equal in glory and majesty and are all eternally God. Well, the Jewish leaders picked up stones to throw at Jesus because of what he said. They, they've done this before. That's why John says, again, uh, back in chapter 8, 59, right after Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. They tried to stone him then. And now here he says, I and the Father are one. And so they're going to try to stone him for a second time. They're not waiting for a trial. They, they don't want any other witnesses. They don't want due process. They're ready to execute him on the spot for blasphemy. Blasphemy is saying something untrue of God or attributing something falsely to God or misusing God's name. That's all blasphemy. Of course, he didn't blas commit blasphemy. Jesus is perfectly sinless. What he said was true. He and the Father are one. And in verse 32, he, he kind of says, now, now hold on a second. Before you start throwing the stones, why are you killing me again? Is it for uh, healing someone, or feeding the hungry, or giving a blind man his sight back again? Wh which one of these things do you want to 
kill me for? Well, no, it's not for good work, they say, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So the plan is to charge the living word of God with speaking evil words about God. Not a good plan. And Jesus' response includes an appeal to Scripture. And this has been somewhat um, enigmatic for, for readers. What we're going to need to do is let Psalm 82, which Jesus is quoting, inform John 10, and let John 10 inform Psalm 82. So let's, let's see if we can nail this down. He says this, Is it not written in your law, meaning the Old Testament Scriptures, I said you are God's? So he's quoting from Psalm 82, 6, and it's in its original context, Psalm 82, 6 is discussing earthly rulers and most likely Jewish earthly rulers. And the reason we say Jewish is because in verse 35, Jesus says, whoever these men are that are being called gods, little g, they were those to whom the word of God came. And that's universally and generally understood to be Israel. The word of God came to Israel. That's who he gave his law to. That's who he gave his word to. So those being called gods with a little g are Israelite leaders who are judging and ruling unjustly in the context of Psalm 82. They're called gods, little g, because they um, were they weren't divine. Gods, little g. They're not. They're not saying they were God or, or like God or little gods in the sense of other divine beings. So not because they were divine, but because although they were just men, they were rulers of Israel, functioning as God's representatives and ruling over the people. They received the word of God. They were, they were called by God. They acted on God's behalf. So their responsibility over the rest of Israel was so great in comparison to those that weren't leaders that they could be called, comparatively, gods. Little g. Jesus continues, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken... Do you say of whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world you are blaspheming because I am the Son of God? He's telling them this. To call mere humans or to call, to call people gods is not without precedent in Scripture. In other words, if God did it, then it must be okay. If God calls mere mortals, mere men, gods with little g, then it must be okay because God is without error. Okay, he establishes that. And then he preemptively anticipates some pushback with that little uh, comment, and scripture cannot be broken. What, he, what Jesus is doing there, he's saying, okay, hold on, and before you come at me with, oh, that's just some obscure one little small line in Psalm 82, and you're pulling it out of context, all that. He's saying, no, don't give me that. Don't, don't, give me, don't give me that this portion of scripture isn't that important. Yes, it's not Genesis 1 through 3. Yes, it's not Exodus 20. But it is scripture... And it cannot be broken. And so Jesus shows us that an argument can be made from any place in God's word. So that's what that phrase is about. He's saying, don't, don't tell me this is unimportant. It's God's word. And I'm arguing from it. So if it's permissible to call certain, men's God, uh, certain men gods, then how is it blasphemy to call someone consecrated and sent by God into the world a son of God? So Jesus is going from lesser to greater. He's like, look, it's okay to do that. 
and I, I'm calling myself a son of God, and not only am I just a, a ruler or a leader in Israel, I've been consecrated and sent by God. So he effectively shuts them down. The point of Jesus' argument here is not to prove to them that he is the Son of God. They're not believing that. All he's doing is showing them from Scripture, hey, this has been done before, and that's all I'm doing. So you can't, you can't accuse me of blasphemy. So after shutting that argument down, after kind of defusing that, he circles back to his signs and works. If I am not doing the works of my Father then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He's telling them, pay attention to what you're seeing. Open your eyes. These are works that have been done in your, in your presence. Uh, walking on water, that was maybe not in their presence, but that's one thing he did. Healing a man born blind, feeding the 20,000. None of these things could be performed by anyone other than God. And they, and they knew about them, and they witnessed many of these things. He's saying, if, if my works didn't back up my words, well then okay, don't believe me. But, you should believe the works. They're miracles. How can you explain those things other than the power of God? So he's trying to summarize this all day. He's trying to pull all this evidence together. He said, you need to believe that I am from the Father and speaking the words of the Father. I told you. I've told you before. I'm telling you now. Look at my words. Look at my works. You're just not believing. That's what Jesus is telling them. And if you don't do that, if you don't believe, then I think we're done here. I think we've reached an impasse. If you're not going to believe in me, and I'm not going to stop being the Son of God and calling for people to believe, then, then I think that's, that's it. We don't need to continue any dialogue. And verse 39 tells us they did reject his words and his works because it says they tried to arrest him. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. It was not his hour. We've looked at that in John before too. They would not accept or recognize him as the Son of God. They just, they just were going to persist in unbelief. And then our passage closes by telling us that Jesus went out of Jerusalem and across the Jordan River to where John the Baptist had been first preaching. And many came to him. And then it tells us the consensus of the crowd out there seemed to be, um, well, based on the witness of John the Baptist, everything he said about this man is, is coming true. Jesus checks out. And then it says, many believed in him there. And we've seen this comment before in chapter 8. We'll see it again in chapter 11. People believed, many believed. It's hard to get too excited over that. Because we've seen from John, sometimes it means genuine belief. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it means false belief. Sometimes it means temporary surface belief. And we know in Acts 1.15 after Jesus' ascension, before Pentecost, the total number of believers was 120. So, again, we have to temper any kind of, oh, this is good, with maybe, maybe they believed. Some did, but many did not. Many did not. Let's summarize this passage. While teaching at the temple, Jesus was approached and questioned by a group of Jews who asked him if he was the Christ. Jesus said he had already answered that question. 
But they did not believe him because they were not his sheep. Jesus went on to teach that all of the sheep are kept eternally by the Son and the Father, and it is impossible for his sheep to be taken away. Jesus declared that he and the Father were one. In response, the Jews tried to stone him for blasphemy, but Jesus countered their charge by pointing to his good works and by quoting scripture. Jesus told his enemies that even if they did not believe his words, they should believe his works. And after this, he left Jerusalem. I hope you could hear these two parties coming to an impasse in this passage. To come to a point past which no further progress is able to be made. That's what this passage is about. It's about an impasse between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. Jewish leaders were not going to believe Jesus was the Son of God. And Jesus was not going to stop being the Son of God who called people to believe. They were in an impasse. And I think John wants us to see this. There are several clues. First of all, he gives a setting in the temple. Jesus had been teaching in the temple several times before. This wasn't his first go in the temple. The Jews asked Jesus if he was the Christ. He said, I told you. In other words, we've been over this several times. And then look at this. I, I, want, to make, I want to pull out a few of the things he said to, so that we can see with some precision he is saying the same things. Look at John 10.25. This is our passage. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And then look at that and compare it with John 5.36. The works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me. Sounds familiar. John 10.27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. John 10.3.14-4. My sheep, the sheep hear his voice. I know my own and my own know me. The sheep follow him for they know his voice. Again, John 20, uh, 10, 28, I give them eternal life. John 5, 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. John 10, 28, they will never perish. John 3, 16, whoever believes in him should not perish. Do you see what's going on here? He's not giving them anything new. He's repeating the same teaching that he had told them previously. They didn't believe then, and they didn't believe here. This is nothing new. This is not new teaching. And then look how John presents some of the action points. John 10.31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. John 10.39, again they sought to arrest him, and he escaped from their hands. John is telling us, this is the, the writer telling us, there's nothing new going on here. They're just going in circles. They've tried to stone him before. They've tried to arrest him before. He's escaped from their hands before. This has happened before. And then finally, in the Gospel of John, this is the last interaction between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. This is the last time he engages them. This is the last time he offers them words so that they can hear. This is the last time he tells them how they are to obtain eternal life. And we've seen, if you've been here through the whole journey, you've seen how he has been extremely gracious with his enemies. In the midst of them attacking him, he continues to offer the words of life and offer out a genuine, valid invitation. He's been very generous and gracious. But at this point forward, there's no more dialogue. Uh, the Jews are done with Jesus. After this point, they make actionable plans to kill him. Before they wanted to, 
and they saw an opportunity. After this point, they, they plan it out, and they succeed. So they're done with Jesus, and after this point, Jesus is done with them. There's no more opportunity. He doesn't make themself, himself available. No more question and answer period in the temple area. No, no more opportunity. No more conversation. He just pulls the plug and walks away. That's it. When we, when we add all this together, the use of again by John, the same teaching, with almost the exact same words spoken, and then the fact that this is the last conversational dialogue between Jews and Jesus, uh, the Jewish leaders, we're supposed to see this is the impasse. This is the point where they reached, and, and it became very clear that both sides are done. They're, they're not going to budge. It was because of their unbelief. Therefore, Jesus let them go in their unbelief. It's still possible to reach an impasse with Jesus today, before we die. When someone hears the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, but repeatedly and knowingly refuses to believe, that leads to a spiritual impasse. Let's pull in this cross-reference that teaches the same thing. This is Hebrews 10.26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. That's teaching the same thing, a spiritual impasse. Before we die. If we, it says if we go on sinning, unbelief is sin. Not believing, not following Jesus, that is sin. If we continue in that sin after receiving the knowledge of truth, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. That means pull the plug. That means that's it. No more dialogue, no more opportunity. That's what our passage is teaching. That's what Hebrews 10 teaches. And there are other passages. It's a point where God says, I'm going to leave you in your unbelief. No more dialogue. We're at an impasse. You, you are not going to believe. And I'm not going to forgive your sin and save you without belief. So we're done. It doesn't make sense to keep going in circles. Now, somebody might raise their hand of objection right here and say, hold on a second, stop, Pastor. Are you saying that when someone hears the gospel, either proclaimed or, or told by someone, or they read it in scripture, and then they don't believe in Jesus, are you saying that that's it, they don't have any other opportunity? No, that's not what I'm saying. And that's not what this passage teaches, and that's not what Hebrews 10 is talking about. What I'm saying is that if God, someone, if, excuse me, if God gives someone light and truth repeatedly, over and over again, like these Jewish leaders, like the recipients of the letter to Hebrews, if someone sits under the preaching of the gospel over and over again, the Holy Spirit brings conviction, they know they're sinner, brings illumination, they know that Jesus is the way, and yet they refuse to believe and they harden themselves to the truth. The Bible teaches that at some point, that person will reach an impasse with God. At some point. 
if they persist in unbelief. In Exodus, when God is bringing the plagues on Egypt, if, if you were to go back and read that, that whole narrative, the text alternates back and forth between saying, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That was a spiritual impasse. And there's no coming back from that. That's what this is teaching. That's what John 10 is about. That's what Hebrews 10, 26 is about. Okay, what about this? Is it possible for someone to live their entire life and uh, not be saved until they're 60 or 70 or 80? Yes, of course. Of course it is. I just learned this past year that someone in their 90s got saved. They were in their 90s and they repented and believed, and we know it was real because they immediately started going to church every Sunday, they immediately started reading their Bible, they immediately started singing praises to God and thanking them, thanking God for saving them in prayer. So yeah, we know it was real. In their 90s, of course it's possible. Yes. But that person had not been repeatedly exposed to the truth. They had not been sitting under faithful preaching. No one had ever tried to disciple him. He didn't have the light that the Pharisees had been given or the recipients of the letter to Hebrews had been given. He'd just been living in unbelief his whole life. In other words, he wasn't just, um, well, let's put it this way, he was spiritually blind, but he wasn't spiritually blind and living in persistent, ongoing, hardened unbelief after knowing the truth. And there's a difference. So the takeaway is this. It is possible to reach a spiritual impasse with, with Christ, and after that point, there's no opportunity for salvation. The, te- the Bible teaches if anyone goes on and deliberately persists in unbelief, and that's what sin is, uh, unbelief is sin, then there is no sacrifice for sins. When we receive the knowledge of God, the knowledge of truth, the knowledge of Christ, we are to act on it. When God is gracious enough to give us light, to show us the way of salvation, we're to seize it. We're to to place our belief in Christ and never look back. Delaying our response to the gospel knowing that that ongoing, persistent hardening and unbelief will eventually lead to an impasse, delaying a response to the gospel is kind of like juggling with sticks of dynamite that have their fuses lit. You can do it for a while. So if you're here this morning and you've heard the gospel and yet you've repeatedly said no to Christ, my question is, how long are you going to keep juggling those sticks of dynamite? Because remember, you don't know if the fuse is this long in several years or if it's, if it's this long, if it's, a, if it's a couple days. At some point, you will reach an impasse with God. We're going to go to the table in just a minute. The table represents the body and blood of Christ with these visible signs of bread and cup. Jesus told us that we are to feed upon him, which means to believe upon Jesus Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you've heard the gospel, believe upon Jesus Christ. Don't delay. 
believe what this table represents. When we come to the table, like, like a lot of things in Scripture, this really does boil down to two groups. You've got Jesus' sheep and everybody else. You've got believers and everybody else. You've got those who come to the table and everybody else. That's what the table, one of the things the table and all the, the sacraments are designed to do is to put a visible difference, one that we can see between those who are in Christ and who are saved and forgiven and those who are not. If you're not at the table, then you're part of the world. You're not in Christ. You have no guarantee for salvation. In fact, you're guaranteed you are not saved if you're not in Christ. So it's the same thing that the Bible presents over and over. Two groups, saved, unsaved. When we come to the table this morning, we are coming in faith. And so I'd ask anyone who has not done that, turn to Christ in faith. Believe that Jesus died for your sins. He took the penalty that you deserve. And, and his righteousness gets credited to you so that God can declare you righteous. Your sin is forgiven. All of it, past, present, future, you're in a new spiritual state. You're born again, the Bible says. New spiritual life in Christ. Jesus gives his sheep eternal life. They never perish. And no one will ever snatch them out of his hand. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word not only to give us the, the words of life, but to also give us words of warning. Father, we, for those of us here this morning that are, that are in Christ, we, we cannot thank you enough for our salvation. We thank you for your body and your blood shed on our behalf. Father, we want to persist in belief. We want to have ongoing belief in Christ to the day we die. We never want to stop. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning who's not in Christ, I pray that they would immediately leave disbelief. That they would hear the voice of Christ and respond with repentance and belief. Amen.